0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Infected, Book 1 of the Infected Trilogy, written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/infected. Chapter 2 the raw and the cooked. Dew staggered out of the burning house. Winter air cooled his red face, while inferno heat singed his back through his suit. Hold on, Mal," he said to the bleeding man on his right shoulder. You just hold on, Ace. Help's on the way. Dew slept on the unshoveled sidewalk and almost pitched into the snow-covered lawn, but he recovered his balance and made it to the curb. He crossed the street, stumbling like a drunk, then slid Brubaker's body into a shallow snowbank, where it hissed briefly like a match dropped into a stale drink. Dew knelt on one knee and eased Malcolm onto the ground. Mal's once white shirt was a sheet of red around his stomach. The hatchet had gone in deep, deep enough to cut through intestines. Dew had seen wounds like that before, and he didn't have much hope. Hang on, Mal. Dew whispered. You just remember Shemeika and Jerome. You Hang on. You can't leave your family alone. He held Malcolm's hand, which felt hot and wet, and was covered with puffy burn blisters. The screech of tires split the air as several nondescript gray Chevy work vans slid to a stop. The van doors opened. A dozen men dressed in bulky chemical weapons gear leapt onto the slush-wet pavement. They brandished compact FN P90 machine guns and moved with practiced precision, rushing to set up a perimeter around Dew and Malcolm, around the burning house. Some of the men rushed to Malcolm's side. See, buddy, Dew said. His mouth was inches from Malcolm's ear. You see, Calvary's here. You'll be at the hospital before you know it. You just hang on, brother. Malcolm let out a groan. His voice sounded whispery, like wind-blown paper scraping against dirty concrete. That asshole, dead." Malcolm's lips, or what was left of them, barely moved when he spoke. Fucking ain't right he is. Three in the ticker, point blank. Malcolm coughed once sending a wad of thick, dark blood shooting out onto the snow. The men in chemical warfare suits hurried him to one of the waiting vans. Dew watched as the soldiers loaded Brubaker's smoldering corpse into another van. The remaining soldiers moved Dew to the last van, half helping him, half pushing him. He got in, heard the doors shut, then heard a small hiss as the sealed van became negatively pressurized. Any surprise leaks would let air in, not out, in case Stu was contaminated with the unknown spore. He wondered if they'd have him in the airlock again, watching him for days on end, waiting to see if he showed the few known symptoms or, even better kiddies, develop some new ones. He didn't care, as long as they could help Malcolm. If Malcolm died, Stu didn't think he could forgive himself. Less than twenty seconds after the vans had screeched to a halt, they tore down the street, leaving the burning house behind. Chapter 3. One Small Step After a journey of unknown distance, unknown time, the next batch of seeds dropped from the atmosphere like microscopic snow, scattering wildly at the tiniest breath of wind. Wave after wave washed through the air. The most recent waves had been close to success, the closest yet, but still hadn't caused the critical mass needed to accomplish the task. Changes were made, new seeds released. It was only a matter of time until things were right. Most of the seeds survived the feathery fall, but the real test was yet to come. Billions died at the touch of water or the kiss of cold temperatures. Others survived the landing but found conditions unsuitable for growth. A scant few landed in the right place, but wind or the brush of a hand or perhaps even fate swept them away. A minuscule percentage, however, found conditions perfect for germination. Smaller than specks of dust, the seeds tentatively held their place. Rigid microfilaments ending in Velcro-like hooks helped each seed stay fast to the surface. With the fortuitous landing began a race against time. The seeds faced a nigh-impossible task of attaining self-sufficiency, a battle for survival, that started with a minuscule arachnid, a simple mite. Demodex folliculorum, to be precise. While microscopic, a demodex is larger than the dead skin upon which it feeds. So much larger, in fact, that it can ingest a tiny flake in a single bite. The mites hide in hair follicles, mostly but sometimes at night they slide out and crawl around on the host's skin. They are not some parasite found only in dirty third-world countries where hygiene is a luxury, but on every human body in the world, including the host. The host's mites live their entire, brief, skin-gobbling lives without ever leaving his body. In their incessant feeding frenzy, some of the mites came across the seeds, which looked suspiciously similar to flakes of human skin. The mites gobbled up the minute seeds. Just another mouthful in an endless and bountiful banquet of dead flesh. The mites' digestive system hammered at the seed's outer coat. Protein-digesting enzymes, called proteases, ate away at the membrane, breaking it down, weakening it. The membrane ruptured in several places but did not dissolve completely. Still intact, the seed passed through the mites' digestive tract. And that's where it all began, really and a microscopic pile of bug shit. The temperature hovered around 70 degrees much of the time and often reached 80 degrees or more with suitable cover. The seed needed such temperatures. It also needed certain measures of salinity and humidity, which the host's skin unwittingly provided. These conditions triggered receptor cells, turning the seeds on, so to speak, and preparing it for growth. But there were other conditions that had to be right before germination could occur. Oxygen was the main ingredient in this recipe for growth. During its long fall, the airtight seed coat prevented any gases from reaching the contents contained within. Contents that, were it biological, might have been called an embryo. The demodex mite's digestive system, however, ravaged the seed's protective outer shell, allowing oxygen to penetrate. Unthinking Automated receptor cells measured the conditions, reacting in an exquisitely intricate biochemical dance that read like a pre-flight checklist. Oxygen? Check. Correct salinity? Check. Appropriate humidity? Check. Suitable temperature? Check. Billions of microscopic seeds made the long journey. Millions survived the initial fall, and thousands lasted long enough to reach a suitable environment. Hundreds landed on this particular host. Only a few dozen reached bare skin, and some of those expired before ending up in bug feces. In all, only nine germinated. A rapid-fire growth phase ensued. Cells split via mitosis, doubling their number every few minutes, drawing energy and building blocks from the food stored within the seeds. The seedling survival depended on speed. They had to sink roots and grow protection in a soon-to-be-hostile environment. The seeds did not need leaves, only a main root, which in plant embryos is called a radical. These radicals were the seeds' lifeline, the means by which they would tap into their new environment. The radical's main task was penetrating the skin. The skin's outermost layer, composed of cells filled with tough, fibrous keratin, formed the first obstacle. The microscopic roots grew downward, slowly, but incessantly pushing through this barrier, and into the softer tissues beneath. One seed couldn't break that outer layer. Its growth sputtered, and it died. That left eight. Once past that obstacle, the roots quickly dug deeper, slipping beyond the epidermis, into the dermis, then through the fatty cells of the subcutaneous layer. Receptor cells measured changes in chemical content and density. Underneath the subcutaneous layer, just before the firmness of muscle, the roots began a phase change, Each of the eight roots became the center for a new organism. The second stage ensued. This rapid growth had depleted the seed's food stores. Now nothing more than used delivery vehicles, the little husks fell away. Under the skin, second-stage roots spread out. They weren't like roots of a tree or any other plant, but more akin to little tentacles, branching out from the center, drawing oxygen, proteins, amino acids, and sugars from the new environment. Like biological conveyor belts, the roots pulled these building blocks back to the new organism, fueling an explosion of cell growth. One of the seedlings ended up on the host's face, just above the left eyebrow. This one couldn't draw quite enough material to fuel the second stage growth process. Simply ran out of energy. A few of the seedlings' parts kept growing, assembling, automatically drawing nutrients from the host and creating raw materials that would never be used. But for all intents and purposes this seedling ceased to be. That left seven. The surviving seedlings started building things. The first construct was a microscopic, free-moving thing that, if you had an electron microscope handy, looked like a hair-covered ball with two sawtooth jaws on one side. These jaws sliced into cell after cell, tearing open the membrane, finding the nucleus, and sucking it inside the ball. The ball's red-rod DNA, the blueprint of our bodies, identifying the code for biological processes, for building muscle and bone, for all creation and maintenance. That's all the DNA was to the balls, really. Just blueprints. Once read, the balls returned this information to the seedlings. With that data, the seven knew what needed to be built in order to grow. Not at a conscious level, but at a raw, data-in, data-out, machine-like state. Sentience didn't matter. The organisms read blueprints and they knew what to do next. The seedlings drew sugars from the bloodstream, then fused them, a fast and simple chemical weld that created a durable, flexible building material. As the building blocks accumulated, the organisms created their next autonomous, free-moving structures. Where the balls had gathered, these new microstructures built. Using the growing stores of the building material, the new structures started weaving the shell. Without fast shell growth, The new organism might not live five more days. It needed that long to reach stage three. Chapter 4. A Case of the Mondays Perry Dossie threw back the heavy bedspread and mismatched covering blankets, exposing himself to the sudden grip of winter morning chill. He shivered. The part of his brain that always begged him to sleep, to set the alarm for another fifteen minutes, tugged at him. A mild hangover didn't help his resolve. "'See,' the voice seemed to say, "'it's cold as hell this morning. Crawl back under the covers where it's nice and warm. You deserve a day off.' It was his morning ritual. The voice always called, and he always ignored it. He stood and shuffled the four steps from his bedroom to the tiny bathroom. The linoleum greeted his feet with unwelcome cold. He shut the door behind him, started up the shower, and let the bathroom fill with deliciously warm steam. As he stepped into the nearly scalding water, the nagging morning voice faded away, just as it always did. He hadn't missed a day of work, or even been late, in three years. He sure as hell wasn't going to start now. Scrubbing himself roughly, he came fully awake. His left forearm flared up with a tiny itch. He absently scratched it with his thick fingernails. Perry shut off the shower, stepped out, grabbed a rumpled towel that hung over the shower curtain rod and dried himself. The steam hung like a wafting cloud that bent and drifted with his every movement. The bathroom was little more than a closet with plumbing. Just inside and to the right of the door sat the small formica counter that held the sink, its once-white porcelain stained with rusty orange from a combination of hard water and an ever-dripping spout. The countertop had about enough room for a toothbrush, a can of shaving cream, and a shrunken, cracked bar of soap. All the other necessities resided in the medicine cabinet behind the mirror mounted above the sink. Just past the countertop was the toilet, the other side of which almost bumped up against the tub, the bathroom was so small that Perry could sit on the toilet and touch the far wall without leaning forward. Used towels of various unmatched colors hung from the towel rack, the shower curtain, and both sides of the doorknob, creating a rainbow terrycloth contrast to the lime green walls and scratched tan linoleum floor. A small digital scale, dented and pockmarked with rust, was the only decoration. With a sigh of resignation, he stood on it. The bottom LED of the ones digit never lit up. It made the last digit look like an A rather than an 8, but it didn't hide his weight. 268. He stepped off the scale. Another itch, this one on his left thigh, hit quickly, like the bite of a mosquito. Perry twitched with a sudden discomfort and gave the area a solid scratch. He finished toweling off his hair, then stopped suddenly, jerking his hand away. Something hurt above his left eyebrow. That angry dull pain of accidentally hitting a big zit. With his towel, he wiped steam from the mirror. A shadow of bristly red beard covered his face. Bright red beard and straight blonde hair, the strange, distinctive mark of Dossie men for as far back as Perry knew. He wore his hair shoulder-length, not for style, but rather because it helped hide the striking facial resemblance he shared with his father. The older he got, the more the face in the mirror looked like the one face he wanted most to forget. Fucking desk job, Perry said, making me a fat boy. He focused his attention on the eyebrow zit. It sort of looked like a zit, but it also looked strange. Small, gnarled red bump. It felt odd, like a teeny bug was biting or stinging him. The hell is that? He leaned forward, skin almost touching the mirror as his fingers prodded the painful spot. Firm, solid skin, with something really small sticking out of it. The something was black, maybe? A tiny speck. He dug at it for a second with his fingernails, but the spot hurt. Probably an ingrown hair or something like that. He'd try and leave it alone, let it firm up and deal with it later. Perry reached for the shaving cream. He always took a good look at himself before shaving and brushing his teeth, not out of vanity, but rather to see just how much farther along his body was towards old Foggyville. Back in college, his body had been hard, chiseled. Six foot five, two hundred and forty pounds of muscle befitting his all Big Ten linebacker status. In the seven years following the knee injury that ended his career, however, his body changed, gradually adding fat while depleting unused muscle. He wasn't overweight by anyone else's standards, and his body still drew plenty of looks from women, but Perry could see the difference. He shaved, slapped some mousse in his hair, and brushed his teeth to complete his repetitive morning preparation. Perry dashed out of the bathroom into the cold apartment. He dressed quickly in jeans, an old ACDC concert t-shirt, and a warm San Francisco 49er sweatshirt. Finally protected against the cold, he headed to the kitchen nook. He could never think of it as a kitchen. He'd been in houses with a kitchen. This six-by-eight-foot alcove stuffed with a stove, cabinets, and a fridge was and would always qualify as nothing more than a nook. He reached for the cupboard containing the Pop Tarts, then arched his back in sudden surprise as another itch, this one burning and almost painful, erupted on his spine just below his shoulder blades. Perry reached a hand up over his shoulder and under his shirts to dig at the spot. He scratched the itch in submission, wondering if he had contracted a rash or possibly suffered from dry skin caused by the arid winter air. Perry pulled down the box of Pop Tarts and pulled out one of the two tart silver foil packets. The stove's digital clock read eight thirty six. Cramming a cherry Pop-Tart into his mouth, Perry walked the two steps to his computer desk and started stuffing papers into his beat-up, duct-tape-patched briefcase. He'd meant to get some work done over the weekend, but the Chiefs and Raiders had played on Saturday, and then he'd spent all day Sunday watching the games in Sports Center. He finished up Sunday night with a trip to the bar to watch the Lions get their asses kicked, as usual. He snapped the case shut, threw on his coat, grabbed his keys, and headed out of the apartment. Three flights of stairs later, he exited the building and entered the knife slash cold sting of December in Michigan. It felt like a thousand tiny pinpricks on his face and hands. His breath billowed wispy white. Jamming the second Pop Tart into his mouth, he walked towards his 12 year old, rush shot Ford, praying to the great gods of piece of shit cars that the old girl would start. He slid behind the wheel and closed the door. The frost covered windows filtered the morning sun in icy white opaqueness. Come on, sister! Perry said to the car, his breath curling up and around his head. He gave a small grunt to victory as the old car coughed to life on the first try. Perry grabbed the ice scraper and stepped out of the car, only to have yet another itch stab at his right ass cheek like a sandpaper needle. He reflexively grabbed at it, which made him lose his balance, and landed him butt first on the parking lot. Digging his fingers through the jeans and roughly scratching the spot, Perry felt the seat of his pants dampen with melting snow. Oh, yes. Perry said as he stood and brushed himself off. It's definitely a Monday. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment.
2: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.